Hi, I'm Sam Sells, and welcome to my podcast, Clean Money. I'm a serial entrepreneur that has led over 2 billion development projects around the world. But the work I am most proud of is the work we do here at Wild Mountain Capital. We not only create great returns for our socially conscious investors, but we make an impact in the many communities we work in and we change lives. I like to say investing matters, and my show is to talk with everyday folks that are not only creating great success, but making an impact in society and improving the lives of others. That is my mission, and I wanna share my stories and others with you. Welcome to Clean Money. Thank you again for joining us today for another great episode of Clean Money, where we talk about making a difference in the world through our investments of time and resources. My guest today is David Garofalo, and he has a very unique perspective, has an incredible uh, track record of success, and has done some really remarkable things. Uh, let me just introduce you today to David Garofalo. Uh, he is the chairman and CEO of Gold Royalty Corporation, co-chair of Gold Mining Incorporated, and chairman and CEO of the Marshall Precious Metals Fund. David was president and CEO and director of Gold Corp. Uh, through 2016 to 2019, um, President and CEO and Director of HUD Bay from 2010, Senior VP and CFO and Director of Agnico Eagle from 90, from 1998 and Treasurer of Inmet Mining from 1990. David, David was recognized as the Northern Miners Mining Person of the Year uh, for 2012. He was also awarded as Canada CFO of the Year by Financial Executives International Canada 2009. If you've never heard of Canada, that's just north of uh, the United States. Uh, he was Top Gun CFO by Brendan Wood International uh, and was recognized by IR Magazine with awards for Best Investor Relations by a CFO and Best Investor Relations by a CEO. That is fantastic. Um, and he's also earned designations as a Canadian Fellow of the Chartered Public Accountants and Certified Director of the Canadian Institute and Corporate Directors. You currently serve as Board of Directors of the Vancouver Symphony Orchestra, super cool, and Greater Vancouver Board of Trade. David, thank you for joining the show. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Sam. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's, it's quite, um, you know, you've, lived just a, a very incredible life. I know not everything has always been uh, super easy for you. Uh, we like to think when we hear about accomplishments and where people have been at, that it was just something that was handed to them and never earned, or it was just easy, or they were at the right place at the right time. Um, and so you tell me just, or tell our audience just a little bit about yourself um, outside of what uh, um, is in the description. <laughs> well, uh, you know, I, I think I'm a classic um, North American immigrant story. My parents were Italian immigrants who came here in the 1950s and um, with very little education and definitely no money. And um, like many uh, first generation Canadians in Canada, I was I benefited from public universities and, and was able to get my CPA and, and entered fortuitously into the mining industry in a very junior position, kind of worked my way up over the course of um, almost 35 years in the industry. And it's it's been a wild and fun ride. Uh, my wife, Christy, and I have eight kids um, here in Vancouver. Well, actually Wonderful. not here in Vancouver. Six of them are out of the nest um, and two of them are still at home. So those are the things that kind of occupy me outside of work, as you can imagine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I know. Kids, are, 
I like to say kids ruin everything. Um, I'm saying that tongue in cheek, uh, firmly in cheek, but, uh, when you, when you start having kids, it, your life changes, your perspective changes. And, um, you can certainly humble a person, um, when you're, you know, four-year-olds correcting your English or something like that. You're <laughs> like, oh my gosh. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, yeah. Wow. Eight kids, six out of the nest, two, two still at home. Yeah. Wow. And then you, I mean, this was the great American dream, um, work your way up through a company, um, and get to the top. And then, you know, and with all that, um, tremendous amount of corporate knowledge, be able to lead the company in the right direction. How is that? Uh, how do you think that's changed now in the world? Um, well, I, I think parents are, are much more involved in their kids' lives these days. Uh, my parents were very hands-off. Uh, my sister and I were latchkey kids. And, and uh, I get the impression, that, you know, there's been a proliferation of private schools, both at the elementary and secondary, and, and also, I guess, at the university level. Um, you know, kids are much more inclined to, to get a lot more support from their parents, both financially and, and in terms of their involvement. So it has changed a little bit, but there's still uh, an incredible influx of immigrants into Canada in particular. Mm-hmm. Um, we take in about a half a million immigrants a year. So that immigrant experience hasn't, by and large, changed all that much from when my parents came in the 1950s. And so there still is that that um, ambitious immigrant class in Canada, which I think is foundational to our country. Yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, for Canada and for, for America in general, um, or North America in general, I would say certainly immigration has played, you know, one of the key roles in our, in our history and in our future. Tell me, so tell us a little bit about your thoughts now with the economy going the way that it is, just where's your mind at and what are you telling people now? Um, well, I, I think there's significant concern, to be honest with you. Um, we're starting to see um, a financial crisis manifest itself again. I think what happened in the great financial crisis 15 years ago in 2008 is we kind of punted the ball down the field and you know, forestalled the inevitable, uh, which is basically a, a currency reset. And that's happening now. We're starting to see bank failures um, manifest themselves this morning. Almost shrugged off this morning, the First Republic has been absorbed into J.P. Morgan, but there's more to come. Um, And that's a function of all the access that's been introduced into the system really since the great financial crisis. Uh, There was a proliferation of uh, money supply, um, increased money supply over the course of that time. Uh, free money with interest rates effectively at zero, both in a nominal and a negative on a real basis when you consider inflation. I think we're deeply still into negative real interest rate territory, even with nominal interest rates going up. So those accesses are not um, are not disappearing. They're continually being reintroduced into the system. And the Federal Reserve is sucking and blowing. You know, uh, they, they're talking about interest rates going up and they have increased interest rates nominally over the last year. But then uh, on, on a dime, they announced a $300 billion bailout package for failing banks. So they're introducing new money supply while creating the illusion they're tightening monetary policy. They're not. Um, yeah. In fact, if they really were tightening monetary policy, uh, they would be raising interest rates above the headline inflation numbers. But they can't do that because debt to GDP globally has grown to 350%. And that's compared to 100% in the last big inflation cycle in the 1970s, where the where the central banks had 
latitude to raise interest rates. And they did. You know, interest rates went to 20% in the 1980s under Paul Volcker when inflation was around 14%. So Paul Volcker had the latitude and he had the, uh, you know, serious attitude towards uh, bringing um, inflation to, to heel. And he did by the early 1990s, we're into 2% inflation and stayed there for 20 years um, until the great financial crisis when those excesses manifested themselves and, and we saw a massive increase in money supply. There really isn't the ability for central banks to raise interest rates dramatically without bankrupting governments. Um, just in the last 18 months, uh, US debt service has increased or doubled to a trillion dollars a year. That's one out of every $7 uh, tax revenue in the US. If interest rates went up another one or 200 basis points, which are unlikely to happen, but if it did, that would double again. Um, clearly unsustainable. And that that's a rich country. Can you imagine the developing world, how they're going to be absorbing those interest rate increases? They can't. Not with the debt levels that we're experiencing right now. So I think the central banks are trying to create illusion, an illusion of tightening interest rates and tightening money supply, but they're not. Um, and I think inflation is deeply entrenched and is likely to be here for, for a very long period of time, just because there, there isn't an appetite nor the financial capacity to really tighten money supply, increase interest rates to a level sufficient to tame inflation. They want to inflate debt away. They can't repay it. So they're going to make it shrink as a percentage of GDP by inflating the economy. Yeah, very, very interesting. Uh, if I could, um, from a micro perspective, what does this look like? So homeowners, their interest rates go up. If you've already set, you're fine. But if you're buying a new home, you know now you're buying half of the same price of home that you could have bought before and have the same payments or if not more. Uh, for us in the commercial real estate industry, uh, I have a, a out of all of our properties, we, we have a couple that are on... Um, you know, adjustable rate mortgages that are tied to, you know, LIBOR or the 10-year treasury um, and seeing those payments go up uh, almost by double now. And so, you know, when you have a, a positive cash flowing property and then all of a sudden your, your debt payments go up a 2x, uh, all of a sudden your property doesn't make money, doesn't make revenues. And so you, we've seen just this massive amount of instability in the commercial real estate market. A lot of that's not hitting the news unless it's a, a massive failure. We had um, a couple of weeks ago, we had uh, some folks in uh, um, Houston who lost 3,200 units uh, to foreclosure. And so 3,200 multifamily units, that's a lot. And that whole thing went to foreclosure. This was a big company, uh, $800 million in assets, um, not newbies and you know, they just lost, I don't know, 90 or $100 million of investor equity just vanished uh, in that transaction. And so moving that up, you have these banks, um, including Silicon Valley Bank, that had commercial holdings and other lenders who have commercial holdings. And all of a sudden you have millions of dollars in revenue from one person here, millions of dollars of, of payments from each one of these entities that stops. It uh, destabilizes these banks significantly. You got office spaces that are getting foreclosed on at a rapid rate, particularly in large cities. And it's, you know, snowballing into the, we're seeing that on the macro scale. If from your perspective, you know, we have, so we have the Fed saying, you know, supply demand, we're going to uh, raise interest rates and try and 
tamp down demand, right? Because we make everything more expensive and now we're supplying more cash, uh, which seems idiotic, but it's the government. They, you know, it's not about being wise. It's about doing what people want you to do or perception or optics. And so what, what should the government be doing right now outside of interest rates? Because you've already said now we're at the point where we can't just raise interest rates um, nonstop. What, what can they do? Um, and then how do we, we as uh, regular private citizens protect ourselves? Yeah, what they should be doing is actually raising interest rates to a sufficient level to tame inflation. They're not going to do that uh, because uh, none of them have the political appetite uh, to, to have that kind of financial reckoning because um, it would result in um, uh, a reset in the real estate market, result in a reset of uh, currency levels. Uh, these are just not things that they have an appetite for. They've continually been punting it down the the, the field for, for years now. And I, I think they'll just allow inflation to entrench itself and allow the debt to be shrunken as a percentage of, of the global economy. I think that's the only way they're going to deal with it because it's politically expedient for them to do that. And I would say the Federal Reserve and central banks globally are as politicized as the governments that they're supposed to be separate and independent of from. They're, they're, they're very political animals as well. Yeah, so I agree. I just think that's that's the way this is going to be dealt with. It's not the way it should be dealt with, but that's the way it's going to be dealt with. And then the question you have to ask yourself is how do you protect yourself against that type of inflation? And, you know, paper's infinite, but hard assets are finite. So you want to buy hard assets. And and that's why gold, um, I think, is going to have its day, as it did in the 70s and 80s when we saw inflation last uh, accelerate dramatically. You know, gold did extremely well, particularly in the early 1980s, as that interest rate cycle was tightening, um, and gold achieved at the time an all-time high of over $800 an ounce. If you inflation adjust that to today's dollars, that would be over $3,000 an ounce. So still a lot of headroom, at least 50% upside from current gold prices, if you assume the last cycle uh, repeats itself. I, I think it has the potential to be much stronger than that because this cycle has the ability or has the potential to be much more entrenched in, from an inflationary perspective with the central banks doing the wrong thing, uh, actually bringing interest rates down when they should be bringing them up to tame inflation. And that'll drive real interest rates down to deeper and deeper into negative territory as inflation accelerates. And the inverse correlation between the gold price and real interest rates is striking dramatic over a 50-year period since the gold price was deregulated, decoupled from the US dollar. And we've seen the US dollar experience a 90% decrease in purchasing power since the early 19, 1970s when Nixon made the decision uh, to abandon the gold standard. And he did that for one reason, to fund a war <laughs> in yeah. Vietnam. And and so what we did in 2008 was effectively to fund a financial war. You know, we had uh, a significant credit crisis and we had a great reset uh, in 2008, much like we had in the early 1970s when uh, the U.S. dollar abandoned the gold standard. It was a very similar dynamic in 2008. And today we have a war in, in Europe. And, and so there's striking parallels between that cycle and the last. And we're going to have to print money to fund that war. As we did in the 1970s, we had an oil embargo in the 70s. We have an oil embargo today, self-imposed. We're not buying Russian energy products. So a lot of hallmarks uh, to this inflation cycle, to the one we had back in the 70s, with the big differentiator being, as I said, the debt levels. They're much, much higher now 
uh, as a percentage of GDP, three and a half times as a percentage of GDP as they were in the 1970s. So really means that the central banks can't reverse course without bankrupting uh, a lot of the developed world and without putting uh, their own fiscal balance into financial peril in the U.S. So it's been mm, topic of conversation, particularly with myself and investors who have done very well for themselves, um, who have been through you know more than one cycle. I was investing in real estate in 2008. I made it through just fine uh, at the time because we bought stuff at you know half price. We always kept our bases very very low. Um, we're going to make it through this crisis as well. We've kept our bases very low. Uh, and that's enabled, that's given us some options in regards to debt that others did not have. For example, the 3,200 unit uh, portfolio I just uh, brought up earlier, they could not refinance because their basis was too high. And so we've, everyone's expected the rates to go up. We all kind of were looking at the economy to go off the rails. Uh, it was self-imposed a lot of, at least in my opinion, you know, I think a lot of this was preventable. The oil embargo was self-imposed. We could have kept supply prices down quite a bit um, in in certain regards. 2020 brunched us on the supply side, um, and that drove, uh, uh, you know, COVID really drove a lot of that. But we, we just set ourselves up for this massive failure, um, and here we go. So you, you talked about uh, assets like... Um, you know, hard assets, you said, are finite, which is um, absolute absolute uh, truth, right? Um, and you talked about gold. I was just having this conversation with uh, an investor friend of mine. Uh, he said, I can't afford gold, so I'm buying silver. <laughs> I was like, well, that's another sure. way. And silver, yeah. I think, is a reasonable proxy for gold. Uh, you know, 25 bucks an ounce. I think it actually has the potential to outperform gold in a rising gold price environment because typically the ratio between gold and silver prices in a bull market for precious metals is down to 40 to one. Today it's 80 to one. So what that tells you is gold accelerates, silver will probably uh, provide more leverage uh, to higher precious metals because that that ratio will narrow. So let's say gold went to $3,000 an ounce. It's conceivable that silver would go to a hundred bucks an ounce in that environment. Wow. That would be, um, that would be an incredible change. Do you recommend, um, so his, his comment was like, I, I really want to have physical assets. So he's buying silver in, um, you know, physical coins that he, you know, has been stockpiling and, and setting aside, um, dug a hole in the yard, you know, and, and burying it there. Uh, just joking. If sorry, deadpan. Um, so what do you what do you recommend, or how do you recommend people if they are interested in gold, silver, precious metals? Um, what how do you recommend they actually invest in that stuff? No, it's an excellent question. And and if you believe in gold as an asset class and believe in the investment thesis that I, I laid out, uh, you know, there's several ways to play the precious metals. I mean, one is you can buy the physical, as you correctly pointed out. And I own some physical. I, I think that's a, an entirely reasonable way to own gold. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, the, the challenge with that, of course, is um, you have to store it and there's costs associated with that. Uh, but but it's it's an entirely uh, correct way to invest in the precious metal sector. Um, if you're looking for leverage to the gold price, um, then you theoretically could buy a producer 
uh, gold producer, mm-hmm. you know, like Newmont in the US, um, Barrick in Canada or Ignico Eagle. Uh, they all provide leverage to the gold price in that um, as the gold price goes up, you know, 10, 15%, their margins should increase uh, uh, disproportionately higher than that. You know, they should go up 30, 40, 50%. But that's under the uh, the basis that we're in a stable cost environment, that their operating costs are not inflating. Unfortunately, mining companies are not immune uh, from the inflation we're experiencing in the general economy. So they have actually seen their, their input costs inflate, their operating costs. So that's kind of undermined the leverage proposition. So I'd be cautious about which producers you buy. I want to make sure they're quality producers in uh, low political risk jurisdictions with stable cost structures. But by and large, they're all experiencing inflation right now. Um, the other way to play it, and it's been demonstrated as a superior way to, to introduce leverage to the gold price into your portfolio is buy a royalty company. Mm. And the way the royalty companies work is they don't operate the mines. They just own a percentage of the top line. They get a royalty on the gross revenue. Uh, and Gold Royalty Corp, the company I run, um, owns 217 royalties on mines and development stage projects across the Americas. And so it doesn't matter what happens to operating costs or capital costs of the mine site because we just get a percentage of the top line. And yeah. so that yeah. means we've got unfettered, uh, unfettered access and unfettered leverage to higher gold prices. But we also get the expiration upside at the mine site as well, because the operators will continue to drill out their deposits to extend their mine lives. And our royalties extend to the increases in reserves as well. But we don't pay for the expiration. Once we own a royalty, we own it outright and we own it in perpetuity. And we never have to put any money into it. We don't get capital calls. So we just benefit from the upside our operating partners realize in their expiration efforts. And we get the upside of the gold price without being exposed to their operating costs. It really is the best of all worlds um, and provides superior leverage for the gold price. So you tell me um, for, for those of us who, um, I mean, we're familiar with gold, we're familiar with producers. Uh, talk to me just a little bit, if it's okay, about how, I mean, you already shared a little bit about how the royalty works. How are those royalties secured? Are you investing in those producers, providing them cap, capital and need for plant equipment? Um, how does that work? Yeah, precisely. Um, there's, there's generally we're doing project financing. So a developer or an explorer or an operator who are looking to build, explore, or expand their existing mines will come to us as a source of capital to help them do that. And then we put the capital into the mine and then we take a royalty back in return. And then we're done. Once we own the royalty, we own it outright. We never put another dime into it and we own it in perpetuity. Yeah. Uh, so it doesn't matter if the operator changes hands. It doesn't matter if the operator goes bankrupt. Uh, we're in low political risk jurisdictions with an excellent legal framework that ensures the sanctity of our royalty. And once we have the royalty, we own it forever. Uh, so it doesn't matter if uh, the, the you know the, the mine changes hands, the mine goes bankrupt, uh, the royalty stays forever. Uh, it's part of the uh, underlying framework uh, of the mine. Um, and so that that um, sanctity of that royalty is really fundamental to our, our investment model um, and uh, really provides unlimited upside and optionality for our shareholders. So let's talk about, so the, the prices of goods and materials have gone up. The supply chain has been crunched for a while. You order something, it takes twice or three times as long to get on site as it did before. We felt this in construction. Uh, 
um, in, uh, in my industry, in the, in the real estate industry, for sure. Um, speaking with uh, someone a few days ago who um, sells, you know, these $90,000 tires to miners to, you know, for their vehicles, these ginormous tires. And he was talking about, we were talking about just the, the demand curve and how things had changed uh, since COVID and how things have slowed down and then all of a sudden picked up and, and so forth. So you've seen a lot of these uh, price fluctuations affect your operators. Um, have they been able to stay in business? Have you seen a lot of folks go out of business or is uh, business just stronger than ever? Um, well, look, I, I would say that um, there's been significant challenges on the operating side and the mining side. In spite of the fact that the gold price has been going up, there's been significant inflation and operating costs. I think the more fundamental issue is that the industry has been shrinking over the last decade or so um, since 2012 when reserves in the ground peaked as a result of significant exploration efforts coming out of the great financial crisis. Since then, um, the industry has been deleveraging uh, returning capital to shareholders and not reinvesting back in the ground to replace depleting assets. And so we've seen a rapid decrease in reserves down 40% from their peak in 2012. And as a result, we're seeing basically the industry cannibalize itself. There's been a lot of M&A in the sector. Yeah. Uh, that culminated for me in 2019 with Gold Corp and Newmont merging. I was leading Gold Corp at the time, which was the third biggest gold producer in the world. We merged with Newmont, the biggest um, in the $32 billion merger, which is the all-time uh, largest merger uh, in wow. gold mining history to create the world's biggest gold company by market cap and by production. And it was done out of existential necessity because both companies individually were shrinking. Uh, we hadn't replaced our reserves. And as a result, we needed to basically get together to stabilize our production. And four years later, Newmont's doing it again. They're taking over Newcrest in Australia. And we thought after we did the Gold Corp merger, that would be it. They'd be in a, a good position for years to come. But as a result uh, of, of continued shrinking and reserves and production in the industry, uh, the industry is going through another round of consolidation. Um, so what that tells you is if you're not finding it in the ground, you're not investing through expiration, uh, you're going to have to uh, basically buy your way out of, out of extinction. And that's what's happening in the industry. And we've seen... I, I, those are just a couple of examples, but there's been a, a massive amount of consolidation in the sector and there's still more to come because the industry still is not investing back in the ground in in grassroots exploration. Why are they not um, reinvesting? Is that because of the agreements they made over the past 10 years and, and investors expect a return and they're not willing to reduce that return? Yeah, there's been there's really been no fresh capital in the mining sector over the last decade. Um, in terms of generalist equity interests, generalists have been buying technology, Bitcoin, uh, you know, they've been buying financial services. Uh, they've been in other places within uh, the general equity markets in order to get their returns. They just largely abandoned the mining sector. And they, what they told the miners is, you're going to have to sustain yourselves. Uh, you're going to have to deleverage. Uh, we want dividends. We want share buybacks. If you're doing all of those things, you're not investing back in the ground uh, to replace uh, depleting reserves. The other factor is, and it's related, is um, the industry by and large relies on the junior explorers to do the grassroots exploration. Generally, the mine operating companies don't do grassroots exploration. They do exploration around their existing mines when they're looking to just extend mine lives and leverage the existing industrial complexes they've already built. 
they leave the, they've effectively outsourced grassroots exploration to the juniors. The problem is that juniors have had very uneven access to equities, equity markets. They haven't been able to raise the capital to do grassroots exploration. And so because that's not happening at the bottom of the pyramid, we're not replacing reserves in the industry. Uh, the juniors are still starved of capital. They've got great properties, many of them, but what they don't have is access to capital to explore them. And that's resulted in an existential crisis for the mining industry. Wow. How's that going to affect gold prices? Well, it's hugely constructive because if you think about it, as the gold price goes up, you would think there would be increased supply. You know, uh, producers should be reacting and saying, okay, well, gold's going to $3,000 an ounce. I'm going to produce more. Problem is, um, from discovery to first production, it typically takes 15 to 20 years uh, because it's geologically complex. You have to define it geologically. It's capital intensive, very high barriers to entry. You know, you're spending billions of dollars to build new mines. Um, it, it, um, um, it, so, so capital intensive, uh, socially complex, tough to get a social license to operate, tough to get a government permits to build new mines. Um, so all of those are impediments to getting new mines up and running. And that's why it typically takes so long from discovery to first production to get this, this new capacity built out. So we don't have elasticity of supply to price as an industry. You know, so if gold goes to $3,000 an ounce tomorrow, we're already at 99% capacity utilization in the industry. So there isn't any idle mines sitting around waiting for us to turn on to fill the needs. Right. That means supply will not respond to a higher gold price. In fact, supply is uh, is on an entrenched path to much lower uh, production going forward because of the lack of investment over the last decade or so. Um, so that's not going to reverse anytime soon. And so what that tells you is that... It, you're not going to have uh, an increase in supply undermining the fundamentals for the gold price. Uh, demand is going to be uh, is going to be the driver of the gold price. Demand is going to go up as central banks buy more, as individuals buy more uh, to protect themselves against the erosion of the value of their underlying fiat currencies. And there won't be the supply to meet that. So there's going to be an imbalance and it's going to be fundamentally in favor of a higher gold price. So this is going to um, downstream effect. This is this will drive prices up further, um, inflation up further, if you will, because you know we're we're using precious metals in our vehicles. We use precious metals in our computers. We use precious metals and and all sorts of things. And I ma- I imagine that gold is the not is not the only place that's facing the exact same problem. Yeah, I would say commodities generally, there's been a lack of investment in the ground. I, I, I would say there's limited industrial application for gold. Yeah, there's a little bit of it in our cell phones or whatnot. What's really driving gold demand is central bank buying and individual investor buying. Central banks are buying it because they they want to uh, diversify out of fiat currencies, which are not yielding anything on a real basis anyways. Right. And they want to protect their central bank reserves. So you think about the developing world, whether it's Turkey or Russia and China, they're all massive consumers of gold at the central bank level uh, because they want that backing that you have in the U- US has the biggest gold reserves in the world by far. And they understand that if they want to create a reserve currency in China, they need the physical backing of gold to do that uh, to a degree. And they still only have a fraction of what the U.S. owns. So China is the biggest consumer of gold in the world as a country. They're the biggest producer, but they're also the biggest importer of gold. So they're 
diversifying into gold as quickly as they possibly can, as is Russia and Turkey. And a lot of these developing nations that have significant export markets have an avalanche of foreign currency proceeds, and they're diversifying out of those eroding uh, fiat currencies as quickly as they can into gold. And that's driving it. But you're right. In other commodities, uh, there's significant imbalances as well. Let's take copper, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, We all want to drive electric vehicles. Our governments are saying that we're going to be all electrified in our vehicle fleets by 2035. Um, That's 12 years away. That's remarkable. Um, But just keep in mind that an electric vehicle uses three times the amount of copper that an internal combustion engine does. That's like 600 pounds per vehicle. I have no idea where that copper supply is going to come from. Uh, we have a lot of disingenuous governments waving magic wands saying we're going to be all electric in a dozen years without understanding how the ch- supply chain works. And the dynamic I was talking about in the gold industry is manifesting itself in the copper industry as well. Um, there has been a massive underinvestment in uh, exploration and mine development in the copper industry. I just have no idea where copper supply is going to come from. Uh, Copper prices are going to have to be multiples of where they are today in order to incentivize new exploration and development. We're not anywhere close to the incentive price. And copper's had a strong run already, but not even close to what we need uh, to deliver the kind of volume that that the global economy needs to decarbonize. Uh, So so there's been this, this theme of underinvestment in the mining sector is one that's occurred across the entire mineral complex, not just in gold, but in copper and zinc and, and silver and lithium and, you know, cobalt, name it. Uh, we just, we just lack metals. Mm-hmm. Uh, we lack uh, a willingness at the government level to fast track mine development. You try to get a copper mine uh, permit in the U S God help you. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you've got Joe Biden and, and you know, Gavin Newsom in, in California saying we're all going to be electric in 2035. Well, they're not letting any copper mines be built in the U.S. So where's the right. security of the supply chain if we can't build any mines in the United States? Um, it's a kind of disingenuous, woolly thinking that goes on, not just in the U.S., but in Canada as well with the current liberal, liberal government here. It's just remarkable to me how disingenuous they are. The people that suffer the most are the lower socioeconomic classes, which is where I focus. All of our work is in uh, affordable housing, really not building brand new facilities, uh, but going in and and reworking, retooling communities that have been neglected and forgotten. And so these government policies, like uh, we've been saying this for a long time, you know, these, they benefit the rich and the wealthy and the other people in, you know, their spheres of influence because of, the optics they need to to send out in order to get funded and, and keep themselves in office and, and so forth. But the downstream effects are um, you're hurting everybody else uh, in our countries. And so you, you know, I, when I worked in DC, yeah, you know, we would, we work on these major things. We're all over the news, but for us to move that had to be optically appeasing. And so we would say, okay, what's the right answer? This is what we should do. That'll never sell. Okay, what can we do that's close enough to that that will sell and that, you know, President Obama can go out there and say, this is what we're going to do. You know, it's like, um, and and sometimes it wasn't even close to what we we knew we needed to do, but we knew there just was not the political willpower to get there. So we're trying to make the best choice and present that to our, you know, government leadership to get there. And we have, like you said, you know, 
we're going to do all these things, but we're not going to allow it to actually be done. Um, <laughs> uh, but don't, don't worry about that. Just, you know, focus on the great, the, you know, vision that we're going to paint, but we're not going to get on the path to get there. So what can we do as private citizens to, um, so we, we recognize the problem. Uh, we understand we're full steam ahead, right off a cliff. Um, some of that's already happening. Supply side economics is in terrible shape. The government has not addressed supply side. In fact, they made supply side worse. We're not doing, you know, we got Joe Biden killed supply of oil, right? And now we're funding countries that we don't want to fund, but we're funding them. Um, all these other things that are happening. You just mentioned gold, copper, other precious metals. We're not addressing supply. Um, and all that stuff feeds into inflation as well, right? So what? Absolutely. Yeah. So you, and we're talking about supply side of, of money, which what did they say? 20% of the world's cash has been produced in the past uh, five years or something like that, um, which is just remarkable in and of itself. But so what What can we do? Like, what, what can you do? What can I do? Um, to protect ourselves as well as to um, make a difference if, if, if possible. Yeah, like I think any of us individually are powerless to make that kind of difference at the government level. But what I would say is take advantage of the imbalances that are manifesting themselves in the market. Uh, like I was talking about the imbalances in the gold and copper market and what that's likely to do for, for pricing um, and the momentum that's likely to create. So uh, I would say buy, uh, buy the physical buy the equities that provide you the optimum leverage to what's inevitably going to be much higher hard asset prices, particularly in gold and copper, for example. I think I laid out the fundamentals of both of those. And I think um, in the gold business, the best place to be is in the royalty business. And and I think it's instructive uh, for your listeners to, to, to hear my path, hear my story, because I built and operated mines for 33 years, and now I'm running a royalty company. What does that tell you? <laughs> uh, it, it tells you that I believe in gold fundamentally, but I'm really concerned about what inflation is going to do to the cost structures in the mining industry. So I want to insulate myself from cost inflation, but I want leverage the gold price. You're going to get that in a royalty vehicle. That's why I founded this royalty company over two years ago with my partner, Amir Adnani. And we created the, the, the newest and fastest growing royalty vehicle. We have 60% compounded annual growth in revenue over the next five years. We have a 1.8% yield on our stock already, two years into our existence. So we're already wow. paying a dividend. And that's likely to grow over time as, our, as that revenue growth that I was talking about earlier on grows. And the other really attractive feature of our business is their scalability. You know, I have eight full-time equivalent employees with 217 royalties. I could have 2,000 royalties and I wouldn't need any more employees. You know, wow. we're, we're not building an operating mines. We're just collecting checks. We're yeah. putting capital work and we're getting leverage to the gold price and leverage to the expiration of our operating partners without having to pay for it. All of our royalties are bought and paid for. We never have to put another dime into them. We just have to wait and harvest as the operators uh, deliver that production growth. And so that's a remarkable thing about uh, our business, uh, the business model that we have. And I would say the way to protect yourself against the inflation that's inevitable in hard asset prices is buy the hard assets, but buy something that provides you leverage uh, to the hard asset price increases. And that's what a royalty vehicle does. And, and Gold Royalty, which trades on the NYC American under the trading symbol GROY, GROY, is the highest quality, fastest growing small cap royalty company in the world. 
Well, David, this has been incredibly insightful, educational. I hope everyone took notes. If not, please listen again um, and take notes because these are things that are not being talked about on the news. You're not going to find this on uh, any of the business channels. Uh, maybe sometimes they will a little bit, but <laughs> most, I mean, most of the news is just political nonsense or clickbait, right? It's just, you know, if they don't have any thing else that gives drives clicks, they're just going to do an article about Trump um, because they know that will drive clicks. And uh, unfortunately, we need to prepare ourselves by listening to people who are actually out there um, and know. And so thank you for being an expert and sharing your wisdom with us. How can our listeners reach out to you, find you? I uh, just mentioned the fund, um, but what's the best place for them to reach out and find out more? Sure, goldroyalty.com. And we're on all the social media platforms as well. So it's Gold Royalty Corp, goldroyalty.com, and GRYGRY on the NYC American. All right. Thank you so much for joining the show. Uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. Love what you're doing. Love the impact you're having trying to protect people from losing uh, their shirts and understanding what's happening in the world and how to leverage um, and take advantage of take advantage of the imbalances that are in the marketplace now and they're going to get worse. Uh, thank you for joining, David. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for tuning in to Clean Money, where we talk about sustainable investing that improves society. We are passionate about creating great investment returns to investors who want to use their money to make a positive social impact in the world. If you enjoyed the episode, We'd appreciate a five-star review. And if you are interested in making your investing matter, please connect with us at wildmountaincapital.com. Or you can find me, Samuel Sells, on LinkedIn, on Twitter at Sells underscore Samuel, on Instagram at Clean Money Sam, or on Facebook. And finally, make your investing matter.